Zencaster is now the all-in-one solution making podcasting easy. It's the ultimate web-based podcasting solution. It provides high-quality audio and video podcast production and hosting. With a full suite of professional tools, podcasters can seamlessly record, produce, and publish studio-quality content all from one dashboard. Being a creator has never been this easy. Friends, I started using Zencaster when I realized how much faster editing goes when your guests and you have two separate audio tracks. It's now super easy to record a podcast with Zencaster. Log in using your browser and start recording a high quality podcast right away. Record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. Feel a sense of zen knowing Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is bad, which happens a lot when you live on an island. If you've thought about podcasting before and realize that you need a lot of different tools and services, friends, those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my code Stark76 and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you, friend, to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It is time to share your story. Hey friends, and welcome to Stark Conversations. Here we will have some bare bones, unavoidable, but necessary discussions. I'm your host, Heather Stark. Friends, for years I kept my tongue glued to the roof of my mouth so that I could fit society's idea of a pretty, pleasing woman. However, I always felt broken. It wasn't until I was in my 40s that I realized I'm not broken. No one is broken. It's the way the world was built and the oppressive expectations from society that makes us feel broken. At that moment, I realized how important having a voice in space was, how vital feminism, that's right, feminism is to our world. Feminism is the path to advocacy, healing, and equality. Each week, I'm going to bring you a conversation on the importance of feminism, an action-oriented way of life that empowers, raises voices, and welcomes all people. Please like and subscribe anywhere podcasts are played. I would love to be in conversation with you. Today on Start Conversations, I am discussing the devaluing of girls and women in the legal system with the Project Director for Lioness Justice Impacted Women's Alliance, a nonprofit led by formerly incarcerated women who envision a society where all women are spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically free from all forms of violence and harm in the criminal legal system. This is a stark conversation. Please welcome to the podcast, Jennifer Toon. Jennifer is a passionate prison abolitionist. As a formerly incarcerated woman, her experience with the criminal legal system began at the age of 15 when she was adjudicated under Texas determinate sentencing laws. Her conviction started a long journey through 27 years of criminal justice involvement. Jennifer has been published in the Texas Observer, The Marshall Project, The Guardian, and is the co-host of On the Reg Yard, Women's Prison Podcast. As a project director for Linus, Jennifer aspires to use her lived experience to bring attention to the oft-forgotten voices of other system-impacted women, youth, and people with disabilities. She lives in Austin, Texas with her cat, Taylor, who embodies the mischievous energy of Taylor Swift. Welcome, Jennifer, and thank you for being a part of this podcast. When I think of feminism, I obviously, I've said it multiple times that to me, it is a form of advocacy, a form of of healing. It's not just women. It is everybody that needs voice and space. And what you do with Linus and your uh, advocacy 
for women and girls in the legal system is something that you know I had said in my original correspondence with you that I didn't I didn't think about it until I had started talking to women and then Marcy who I knew from high school just really paying attention to what she was doing and I was like oh my gosh yes of course people are people and we're spirits and this is this is huge and so I want you just to kind of introduce what lioness is and the, just the the what, when, where, how, the, the meat of that. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you so much for, for having this conversation. It's an important conversation, right? So I, I am a woman who was incarcerated at a young age, at age 15. Um, it was through a moment of crisis. There were a lot, uh, lot of opportunities to intervene before that moment, and it just that didn't happen in my life. I grew up in a very rural part of East Texas, um, in an area of the state where the suicide rates are the highest in the state. So um, a lot of a lot of stigma there. But, you know, I went through the Texas Youth Commission, which is now known as the Texas Juvenile Justice Department. Boy, you want a history. You want a history lesson. Go look through youth justice in the state of Texas and you will be shocked um, just how appalling that history has been for children in the state of Texas. I went through that myself, and a lot of people that I still know that are a part of Linus um, went through the youth system. So started me on a journey in the adult crim- criminal system. I was transferred from, from there when I was 17 uh, onto the adult system. I did about 10 years. I made parole. I was doing pretty well. Heather, I was, you know, going to college was, you know, my parents are like, it's over. It's just the thing that happened. And of course, mental illness, you know, it doesn't take, (laughs) it doesn't parole, right? Like it's, it's, it's always um, locked up inside of your head. And uh, when stress came, uh, it came fiercely. And uh, again, another moment of crisis ended back, ended up back in the criminal justice system. And, uh, you know, this, this time I wasn't a kid, right? Like I was an adult, I'd had adult success and college and a career and that was all gone. And I think I understood that in a different way uh, and realized, you know, why, why does this keep happening to me? And I went back to a, a mental health diagnosis that I was given um, at my trial when I was 15, which was borderline personality disorder. Had no clue what it was, had never been treated. Nobody ever explained to me what it was, had no clue. <laughs> so I took it upon myself, you know, when I was in the county jail, I'm like, I'm going to go, go to prison. I know it's going to be a while. Um, and uh, I'll just, I'll research it myself. Oh my uh, and I did. So I kind of gave myself some self-help and uh, my own mental health treatment the best I could through books and, you know, embracing the positive things, uh, in, you know, in a women's prison, which is, again, Uh, me and Marcy uh, talk on our podcast a lot about the differences between men and women's facilities. But, you know, I had a a great opportunity to find and embrace some more positive things. Uh, Not many that the state offers, right? I had to make them my own. Uh, And that really, you know, the survival, I I attribute to, uh, you know, my spiritual practice and God, but man, the community of women and girls that I grew up with in the system, that, that is how I survived. And, you know, when I finally made parole another 10 years later, um, having some understanding of my mental uh, illness and then coming out here saying, how do we duplicate this? How do we take what we had on the inside that was, you know, they had taken my family away from me when I was 15. And this is the family that I, you know, had from half of my life. How do I duplicate that out here? Uh, And it just, it kind of grew from there, just some discussions that I had with uh, friends on the inside and then outside doing some advocacy work, knowing that I wanted to help. But I'm like, man, there is still a space where women are not heard. They're, we're just not heard in criminal justice. Like, y'all are not getting it. The men overpower you. Boy, system impacted men can just be 10 times as, as overwhelming as, as, as men that have never been through the system. And it's like, we need our own space. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's really kind of like all these different reasons to, to how Linus justice impacted women's Alliance uh, was created um, because of the need. And um, 
you know, not just for the advocacy work, but for the community. It keeps me alive. It keeps me safe. Um, it keeps me from letting my mental illness win, right? Because community is healing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. You touched on some amazing points. That is one of the reasons why I love talking about feminism because women are made to connect. And, you know, there's some that say like Brene Brown says that it's in our DNA to connect and women, when we allow ourselves to, damn, we're a powerhouse. And so that's, you know, you just, there's more evidence right there that um, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but I have to imagine things get incredibly dark when you are incarcerated. And so you guys were able to reach out and, and find yourselves, which shows that the spirit, the resilience, the perseverance, the knowing, okay, there, there are other things. And I think it's also very poignant that, um, you said at the beginning, there are all these times for intervention to happen and there's not. And I'm curious why you think, why it, it just seems to me, there's so much common sense about, let's just be proactive about things and we're not. And I live in Texas. I appreciate Texas, but Texas is not very proactive about a lot of things. And I'm, I'm curious if you have thoughts on that lack of, of um, intervention, especially when you talked about just the kids and the history there and that, like, why, why is that just left off? Well, I, I think that I see that across the board with all state agencies, mm-hmm. um, but especially criminal justice and youth justice. It is, you know, in my own life, right? Like it's the moment of crisis. That's when we're going to deal with it. We're just going to let everything fester and develop. And because it's 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 so much work to, to do the things um, that will pay off in the end to establish that. You know, I think of Williamson County, which is a very conservative county in Texas, has one of the best, in my opinion, if not the best, juvenile probation department in the state. It is phenomenal, the trauma-informed care, the real thoughtfulness, um, you know, just uh, all the way around. Heather, the whole criminal legal system there is is to help support the kid and nurture, uh, you, you know, relationships. And we see that outcome. They only commit one to two kids a year um, to the Texas Juvenile Justice Department. They do everything they can to keep kids in community and it's healing and it's working, but they've been putting this stuff into place for over 10 years, right? And it means investment. Mm -hmm. So it's cheaper, right? It's cheaper to deal with the crisis. You know, we would see this in prison even, you know, they have changed their policy about hepatitis C treatment, but for, for a long time, it was, you have to be almost dead to get that treatment because it's it's more cost effective to give it to you then than from the beginning. So we'll just wait. Maybe these people will leave. You know, it, I, I'm sorry, but that's really the lens in Texas is, mm-hmm. you know, let's just continue to kick the can down the road, whatever it is, uh, and let other people deal with it to in order to save money in the short term. Yeah. I mean, and the same with mental illness, you know, I, I have mental illness too, and it's still stigmatized that you want to punish it instead of treat it. You know, it's the only illness that people want to punish, Right. you know? So, um, okay. So I, your, your mission statement is, is very powerful and, and I want to read it and there's this last part of it and I just kind of want to dive into it, but you're, your mission, uh, Lioness Justice Impacted Women's Alliance, is an organization led by currently and informal, formerly incarcerated girls and women in Texas with the purpose of ending the incarceration and systematic devaluing of girls and women within our criminal legal system. I want to dive into that when people end up incarcerated. And, you know, it said for women, you know, women that um, experience abuse and trauma, poverty, marginalization, mental health disorders, substance abuse, and dysfunctional relationships, that typically um, kind of opens the door to where they may, may, you know, do something that gets then the consequences of incarceration. But in my mind, I'm like, okay, but when you're in prison, isn't the exact same thing happening? So how in the world is that supposed to help them not ever do whatever it was or to heal them? Tell me your thoughts about that because it just feels cyclical. Yeah. 
Oh, for sure it is, right? Like, like you said, like the things that, that, that push women into the criminal legal system, you know, mental illness, the overcriminalization of substance use uh, disorders, um, overcriminalizing women's response to abuse. Uh, I just recently <laughs> commented on, I don't know, some TikTok that some woman made making the point that, oh, she takes care of her cats and her children, and then she poisoned her husband, you know. And I'm like, well, it's it's a dark humor, right, because it's true. But you have to dig deeper in, well, I live with those ladies, and yeah, they were the moms of the dorm and the cell block. They took care of us. And so there is this weird cognitive dissonance, like, why would she do this? Well, you ask those women, and they'll tell you, well, I, I used that method of violence because it was covert, and I didn't have to be a part of it. And because he beat me every day. Um, and I was looking for a way to get out where I didn't, you know, and that, that, that weird, well, why didn't you leave when it was happening? Or why didn't you fight back right there? Well, you don't understand the female experience in terms of abuse. And so you, you, you take all this stuff that drives women in the system and then it's just compounded, right? It's just compounded yeah. with the shame and the guilt and the, and the trauma. And for my, for myself too, like having a, a mental illness, it's like, you know, you're expecting me to behave in a way that I don't know how yeah. here at all, right? Like you wouldn't shame me and tell me you, if you just acted better, you wouldn't have diabetes. And it's like, I don't, I can't tell my pancreas how to behave, right? Like, you know, so this, this, this idea of this lens of punishment, um, and, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. It mm -hmm. doesn't. That's why you see people go back into the system because, you know, if, if this was the deterrent, Heather, then we, we, we wouldn't have the death, like the death penalty would have proven like, okay, well, this is no people still act out and do violent things. It's not the deterrent that you think it is. Right. You right. can't shame people into wellness. No, no. <laughs> And they keep trying. They keep trying, oh, yeah. you know, especially with, with women. So if we were to kind of break things down, are there certain issues like when you see women entering into the legal system, you know, the, the, that something has happened and, you know, they have been arrested and they're still in those those early process and stages. Are there certain things that stick out that um, that are that are issues that they face? Yeah, well, you know, you know, women are usually the primary caregiver, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, now that's complicated things. Uh, and, you know, if they've touched the criminal legal system often, if they're, you know, having never had this happen, and even actually women that have had, you know, many touches with law enforcement still don't understand the process. Um, they don't have good representation. Uh, you know, they don't have the type of family support that men have. Right. Because men have who showing up wives and daughters and sisters. Uh, and then when stuff happens to us, well, you better pray that your parents are there um, or a sister because it, our type of support is is absolutely different than the type of support that men get when this happens. Um, and so the, women are facing all those barriers once they touch the system. Yeah. And you brought up a good point. Women are typically the caregivers, which means they're not the breadwinners. So the finances of being able to afford representation or bail or whatever that is also impacted. Um, and so then with women that are incarcerated, this is a very complex situation. And I do not mean to simplify it, but if there were, you know, two or three like issues that come up with almost every woman that, oh my gosh, if we could just tackle these things, it would make a huge improvement. What would those be? Oh, well, mental health, right? Mm -hmm. Like real mental health support and treatment. Um, I think the other thing is, uh, you know, resources. I, I think a lot of areas in the state do that well. Obviously, big urban areas like Houston and Dallas, you find more resources. But there's lots of women that live in rural parts of the state that have absolutely no resources to medical care, which goes into, you know, also mental, mental health treatment. Um, and what I, you know, what I hear often uh, is, 
is, uh, you know, the problems with re-entry, right? Like really focusing on the back end there of when women get out and they perhaps want to do well. Um, it's, you can't find a place to live. You have a criminal background. It's hard to find a job of a sustainable living wage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all these barriers that come from having a criminal background make it almost impossible um, to rise above that. And, and I get a little frustrated when people point to myself or, or Marcy or Lori or any of the ladies on our, our steering committee and they're like, wow, look at all the stuff you're doing. Okay, well, this is not the norm, right? Like, but when you ask where our support was, we say the community of women, we had privileges that, that other folks didn't. Um, you know, we had family, we had cars, we had transportation. We had a lot of stuff that the majority of people don't have. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and that's kind of a barrier too. Uh, when, when society sees some people be able to be successful, they're like, well, then everybody can do it. You know, I had to do it. It sounds like my dad. Well, I did it. Anybody can do it. It's like, well, no, actually they can't, right? They're yeah. in a different place um, socioeconomically and, and they just can't. And it's not their fault. It's this weird Texas thing of you are at fault for everything and there is no responsibility on society or a culture. And you, you, you it has to be an equal balance of the two. Yeah. Yeah, the intersectionality of, of feminism and incarcerated women and, you know, race and socioeconomics, huge. It's huge. It's huge. And that also leads to your support system, like you had said. It's just, holy cow, the web is is really thick with this. Um, when we're talking about girls below the ages of 18, are there other significant things? Um, are there statistics that show what happens with them? Yeah, you know, the large majority of the women that are in our state youth facilities, um, those girls are there uh, from committing acts of survival, whether it's, um, acts of you know, stealing, running away from home, because children are over-criminalized in the state of Texas, which is a very another very weird conversation that I've, you know, had, you know, sitting in legislative hearings and, and, and one legislator said, well, maybe we would do well to just remember kids are people. And it's like, we would think they're not property. They're not cows. They're not chairs. Um, and, and that's the, pro- that's a huge problem too. Like I know what's best because you're a child and you have no say or thought or feeling. Uh, and, and I experienced that as a girl in the system. And so that's been a huge barrier. It's still there. I've been to a youth facility and, and sat in and listened to some therapeutic things. And, and I feel like that's still part of the culture. Uh, but, but girls are there for survival um, offenses mm-hmm. and things like running away, right? Like, uh, you know, I was talking to a lady that also did youth time and she was like, girl, they all started for me when I stole that car. And I said, you know, Right, girl, I get it. And she goes, yeah, I stole the car from the foster home that I was living in because I wanted to get away. Mm-hmm. And it was like, there you go. Like, this is not the belief that there are some children that are inherently evil, like I was told. You know, mm-hmm. you're like this because you're inherently evil. And it's like, no, <laughs> I have a mental illness plus all the stuff that's happening in my environment. And so, of course, you see girls uh, acting out like this. But, yeah, I, I think it's, you know, the sexual abuse and being able to, to have resources and conversations around that where girls feel safe uh, before they, you know, mm-hmm. before that festers and, and turns into the outcomes that I saw in my own life. Mm-hmm. I think that the acts of survival, that's, that is just that phrase alone is very poignant. And that hits hard because every single one of us does something when we are in situations to survive it. Right. You know? Um, and I think that that's part of being human. Oh my goodness. Um, you touched on this a little bit, but menstruation and period care for people in, in, in prisons. What is, what is that like? (laughs) You know, it's one of, you know, I, I remember talking about this, um, with Marcy. And I said, you know, you remember that we tried to do our best to schedule things around our cycles, right? Visitation, outdoor rec, like activities 
like the first thing you're thinking is, okay, am I going to be on my period around that time? Uh, because there's a limited supply of feminine hygiene products, right? And then rec and visitation, um, certain other activities, we're going to get strip searched. So what does that entail? That entails completely removing all of your clothing, squatting, coughing, you know, spreading everything open to look into body cavities, right? And that also includes removing tampons, removing pads uh, in front of everybody in the room. Uh, and you kind of grow numb to it, but it's the the way that we were always shamed in that process. Uh, we just did everything we could to avoid it, right? And, and again, you didn't have the supplies that you needed. And so, you know, I, I mentioned the, the lady that we she bled through her clothing. We had white uniforms, like my sweatshirt here, uh, total white uniforms. You can imagine as a woman, what a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we had to tuck those shirts in. So if you had some type of menstruation accident, accident, uh, I remember I worked in the education building and the girls sometimes would come out, I worked in the library and they would come out of their classrooms to tell the officers hey, I, I just bled through my clothes. I think I need to go to the bathroom. And then they, you, it's obvious you can see it. And the officers would tell them, well, no, you can't go back to the dorm. It's not enough. It's not enough blood? It's not enough blood. And sometimes they would say, well, pull your pants down in here and let me see how much you bled through. No. And so it, it, it which, and here's the crazy thing, Heather, you, you would think this would come from male staff. It didn't. It does not. Male staff are like, get away from me, go do it. I found you some pads. I don't now and have a lot of ignorance in terms of, I don't understand why we need to sell different size tampons. They're all the same. And it's, sir, it's not. Let me explain why. Okay. We'll figure it out. Right. But when it came to the shaming and, and nastiness about periods, it always came from the female staff, which was shocking. I never understood it. And, and I think it's the worst behavior and the, the worst um, abuses to me mm-hmm. came from the female staff. Mm. Uh, the male staff, you already knew. Don't, don't be by yourself. Men were just always this real primal threat of physical and sexual violence. Stay away from them. Um, and they were just always kind of there, lurking. Uh, but it was the female staff mm-hmm. that were just so vicious. Um, and that's not everybody there. There were good staff members, but, but the nasty meanest ones were women. And, and, and I always thought, well, it's the imbalance of power, right? They, they come into a job where they're not appreciated. They're not paid well, and they're treated like garbage. Um, they may have mental illness and they have things going on with them. And so we're easy targets to, to kind of turn that, you know, abuse of power on. Um, and one of the surest ways to do it was behind your, your menstruation cycle. Mm-hmm. It, it was a, it, you, you plan, you do your best to plan everything around when your period starts. It's amazing. I mean, you plan stuff n- now, you know, not in prison, but not to that degree right. because you always know you've right. got those, those resources and, um, right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And it's such an easy fix. It's not hard. You know, it's not hard to, to give women what they need. So then, you know, dare I ask about childbirth? What is, what is that if, if women are pregnant when they're incarcerated? Well, you know, that, that has changed through the years. Um, when I was locked up, you know, the first time, you know, 20, 27 years ago, oh boy, it, it was real rough for them. Um, they went to a, a, a smaller unit in Gatesville uh, and then they were transferred to the hospital down in Galveston. That's the prison hospital. When they gave, when they went into labor, they would dr- four hour drive, rush them down there. Uh, but then they said, okay, well, let's move these women to the Plain State Jail, which is in Dayton. It's about an hour and a half from Galveston and a horrible facility, terrible state jails are absolutely a nightmare and um, no air conditioning, no temperature control. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those women were there and then with all the heat stuff over the past, you know, 10 years, they started to house them at the medical facility, the medical prison unit that is almost, I don't know, 20 minutes, 10 minutes from the hospital. It's in Texas city. It's called the Carol Young unit. 
So they house the pregnant women there now. Um, and uh, there was some legislation several sessions ago that outlawed shackling women's hands and feet together and, and stop shackling them when they're giving birth. They're not going to run off anywhere. And uh, also making sure that, you know, male staff is not in the room. I had a friend that gave birth in shackles with a male officer just literally standing watching with the doctor. Uh, so some of that has changed. But, you know, when you when your kid gets taken away two or three days after you gave birth and you're shipped off back to the unit in Gatesville, um, that's that's hard. I mean, there's no other way around that. You, you get to see your, your newborn infant for maybe a day or two, and then that's it. And if family can't come and pick the baby up immediately, they will call CPS. And then that's uh, open door to a nightmare uh, in itself. So you're, you're released to go back with probably little care and you're just expected to recover from the, the trauma of childbirth, even in the best situations, but also the fact that you had this child and now you don't, right. you don't have the child. And you're just supposed to be okay with that. That, the idea that that doesn't add to any mental illness, illness or trauma or anguish um, that already exists is yeah. is pretty ignorant. Yeah, <laughs> you and, know. And, and you know, the state yeah. has done some things different, but you know, at the end of the day, like you said, my I'm giving birth and leaving, and I'm leaving my child. You know, I that that friend that that gave birth, she was like Jennifer. I never realized until I traced it back. The moment my life changed was when I got out of prison and I lost control of my life. She said, and I, it's because I've never dealt with that feeling of having had my son there and him being taken away. God, it's trauma. Oh my gosh. It's so traumatic. Many of you know that I live on a small island off the coast of Texas and we treasure our beach walks. However, every time we go, we are picking up plastic that is washed ashore. That's why I'm super excited about this company, Sun and Swell Foods. Sun and Swell Foods is the nation's first online plastic-free grocery store. Shop their assortment of delicious, healthy foods and plastic-free compostable packaging. Don't have access to composting? Well, you can send the used bags back to them via their compostable bag send back program. So take a listen to some of these statistics. By 2050, there will be more plastic in the ocean than fish. Only 9% of the plastic created has ever been recycled, and we consume the equivalent of one credit card's worth of plastic every week. So let's choose some food in eco-friendly packaging. And let's talk about that food in the eco-friendly packaging. Sentencewell Foods are delicious, 100% plant-based, vegan, 100% gluten-free, 100% real foods, no added preservatives or ingredients, and once again, comes in compostable packaging. It's also woman-owned. It's a woman-owned small business, so why not promote it on a feminist podcast? If you're looking for a more planet-friendly pantry, shop Sun and Swell and get 20% off site-wide when you go to sunandswellfoods.com and use code STARK76 at checkout. That's 20% off your entire order when you use STARK76 at sunandswellfoods.com. You, you touched on something, um, you touched on heat and I have, you know, watching y'all, y'all have been, um, advocating about heat. And of course, you know, we've said we're in Texas, we're recording this in September. It is still one of the hottest months of the year. And I think on record, July was the hottest month mm -hmm. ever. And it's amazing. Number one, that nobody has thought, oh, these are people that need <laughs> that, you know, are, are cooking just cruel. It is very, very cruel that that's what that is. So tell me about the support y'all are receiving or are not receiving as y'all are continuing to advocate. Yeah, I, I feel like, um, you know, as a whole, uh, I feel mm -hmm. like citizens do care. Like, I, and I think that's a direct result of, you know, narrative advocacy, right, um, is 
hey, <laughs> this happened to me and I'm a person, right? Like, yeah. tell me to my face, do the crime, do the time. And it's harder to dehumanize people to their face. So to be able to own the issue and go around and say, this happened to me um, and to humanize, you know, there were three women that, that we know for sure died uh, from what our witnesses on the inside are saying was heat related and their autopsies are looking that way. You know, it's sudden unexplained heart attacks with no prior histories or anything like that, you know. But I'm seeing more support for it than I ever have um, through just regular everyday citizens because it is, people recognize this is really cruel. Like, uh, you know, your sentence there, you're, to take away your freedom is the punishment. It's not yes. to torture you, right? Like this is torture. We're not talking about being uncomfortable. Oh God, it's warm in here. It is torture to be in a cell um, and it's 120 degrees. That is, you're just trying to survive that and, and praying for that to pass. But um, better support. We still still mm. need the support of the Senate and that's been a challenge, but. I think we'll, we will get there. Not that this solves it, but is there ready access to water or do you have to ask for water? Yeah. So depending on where your living area is, a lot of women's facilities are dorm uh, set up. So you have cubicles like work cubicles, but there's your bed. Uh, you know, you have easier movement to go to the sinks and to the bathrooms. But if you're in cell block, uh, you know, you've got your little metal toilet and sink uh, that doesn't put out much water. Somebody said, I think this lady's over exaggerating when she said her husband is using water out of the toilet to lay in. And I'm like, he's, she's not right. Because that's the easiest, fastest way to get water is to, you know, shovel it out of your toilet onto the floor. Um, but drinking water, cold ice drinking water that has to be brought around the cell blocks by the staff. Uh, so you may not have access to that. It just depends on your, your area of assignment for your housing. When you're in your fight for this, um, for the heating issues to be resolved, I, you, there's a paragraph and this is another one that I was like, oh my gosh, this is so true and so applicable to all of the things. Y'all write, it is essential to recognize that 97% of incarcerated men and women will eventually come home to their communities, which I don't think people realize that's a big number. I think people have it in their head that somebody gets quote unquote locked up and they're just gone. Um, but 97% come home. Willfully disregarding their humanity impacts the mental health. There we go again. Rehabilitation prospects and the overall well-being of incarcerated human beings. So ask yourself, how then do you want them to return to your community? Feeling valued as a human being or less than a pig? Because in one of y'all's previous statements, you talk about how livestock gets air conditioning, air controlled uh, space, but people, human spirits do not. But that is so true. If, if, people just stopped and listened, you know, 97%. So this right here to me is for those that say, well, you shouldn't have done it. You know, this is why we're not giving you guys, you're not giving fluff to a prison system. We're giving resources so people can right, heal. Right. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And people don't realize, and, 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 you know, that's a big number. Right. Yeah. 95 to 97 percent of the prison population comes home. Very few people have life without parole and death. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, how do you want how do you want that neighbor to come back feeling like, you know, oh, my God, you know, when COVID happened or we were hot, you know, the community stood up for us and said, hey, we we know they're there to be punished, but don't don't cook them, like make sure that they have water. Like this is outrageous. And it's a sense of they fought for me. They care for me. I feel a part of the community. If you know that somebody knows that you're being abused and did nothing, not only did they do nothing, they said, you deserved it. I don't care. You're a piece of crap. Why would I want to come out? It, this is, you know, including my own mental healing has been, I have to forgive the people that have treated me that way. And for out, you know, society saying these horrendous things about me as a child, like 
I wanted to be very angry and resentful. Uh, and it's taken a lot of therapy to get past that because who would want to participate? Oh, uh, am I good enough now to be allowed in your neighborhood and community? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of anger that comes behind that, right? And so this, you know, the community will just say, well, they, they, they still don't act right because that's at their core, they're terrible human beings. Well, no, why would I want to do anything for the community if you never, you never did anything for me knowing that I was suffering? Yeah. Yeah. That the idea of belonging does a lot for people. It does. It does. Yeah. Yeah. That, that connection. Um, so you know, how do we get in your, your thoughts and your expertise in this area, how do we get people to find their humanity and start listening to what is happening to women in the legal system? Well, you know, I think it goes back to that. It's hard to dehumanize people to their face. And and Mm -hmm. it's, it's the reason why lioness is so important is to be able to give a space and support to women that are finally ready to share their story and to own it, right? Because there comes a great amount of empowerment with that. Um, it's a vulnerability, but, you know, we're seeing some of the changes that we're seeing and, and may seem incremental to people. Uh, but for us as women in the system, when they started putting in some tempered air and temperature controls in the ADSEG area of Lane Murray, that was huge. I told Marcy, mm-hmm. I said, girl, that is a direct outcome of what we specifically are doing. Right, because we know that women are last for everything, everything. This would have never happened without our advocacy. Um, so to be able to, to provide women with that, that space to, to, to speak out, that, number one, has to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, because, it, like I said, it, it's, harder, it's harder to treat people as objects um, and dehumanize them when you finally hear them. Right. So to be able to touch people in today's society is so, oh my God, it, it, yeah. it's so bad. Like the, the hardening, uh, and I'm a spiritual person. So I, I do kind of go back to some of my East Texas roots. It's like the end, the end of, end of time, so to speak, or, or people's hearts will be hard. My God, they're hard right now. They're just, just, yeah. you watch people die and, and all the tragedies that happen and people are making TikToks and jokes about it with absolutely no feeling. Um, and the only way to penetrate that is to find something in common. And I think this is, we, we do this with legislators. We, we try to do this well is there is something inside of that person that will connect to my story. I just have to find it, whether it's a, loved one that had been incarcerated, whether there's some mental illness, there is something about my story. If I can find that common ground, I'm in like Flynn, because mm-hmm. the second that connection happens, I'm human and all the women on the inside are human. And that's, that's how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I think that's true. I'm playing on that um, connection. Women coming out of incarceration, what are some of their immediate needs that if there could be something for them waiting that would just make a huge difference. First and foremost, that they have every document they need, their ID, their birth certificate, their social security card. They need all of that before they can make any other steps. Um, and then I'm, I would say I am under the belief that it's housing first, right? It doesn't matter if you get a job, if you have nowhere safe to live and stay, forget it. <laughs> so to be able to have a safe, place and not return to the to the things that took you to prison to have a safe home and housing to stay in and then a job you know I I think those are like you said the those that hierarchy of need um and a support system and and I feel like if a woman has those things even if she has to struggle I did I worked two minimum wage jobs and um it was tough it was tough but I still had my community uh, of the women that I was incarcerated with, uh, in, you know, through social media and, and, and mm-hmm. a little bit, you know, they'd come see me. I was on a very intense monitor. So that made my life even more difficult. But, um, if you have those basic things, you can begin to, to build momentum and strength. Women coming out of incarceration versus men coming out of incarceration. Is it the same type of thing with the support system as you talked about with women going in, you know, men have a different support system than women do. Um, so that makes these issues uh, 
kind of specifically for women. Yeah, because women typically, I don't have a place to go, so I'm going to go back to that same guy or partner. You know, I don't want to stereotype abuse, but I'm going to go back to this same partner in abusive home and and do a lot of things that I don't want to do to survive (laughs) because that's all I have. Or if I have nothing, then I'm going to, a lot of times when I was working in Houston at a AIDS Foundation Houston, we would do a lot of outreach at the Houston bus station, which is a very intense place. And the women from Plain State would be, you know, sent there to to get on the bus, right, to go wherever they're going. And, uh, you know, they would be getting out with their little, we call them chain bags. They're red bags that you, like, you put potatoes in. Uh, those are, anybody know, that's been in prison knows what those are. And so these women would get, you know, they'd have some very oversized goodwill looking clothes on with these bags and they 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 don't know they have no one waiting for them but there would be men circling that were pimps uh and they knew who to look for and what choice does she have uh, and i think that's unique to women i think it's i don't think men you know i know sometimes men get frustrated with me because they're like you don't under you know we all i get it we all share a lot of the similar problems but women have this uniquely different set of obstacles Mm -hmm. in terms of dealing with the fallout of incarceration. And as long as there's inequity with women versus men, it will trickle down. And I think the further down it gets, the wider the discrepancy is. Yeah. Yeah. My goodness. Are there currently nonprofits like Linus, um, that are are there for women coming out of prison that are like, you know, come our way and we can get some um, some foundation under you? Yeah, you know, um, we're building out our regional uh, directors and their individual groups and their communities, which they will serve as a kind of a hub and a guidance for, for resources in, the, in their specific communities. Like, here's where you can go for food. Here are some places I know that'll hire um, you know, the, the problem with reentry in Texas, it is so scattered and there's not a real strong, cohesive network of updated resources. Often we would get pamphlets or booklets with information in it that, you know, th- these places don't exist anymore. There's a high turnover um, of places offering services. Uh, typically, the best places are going to be churches and ministries. We do um Syndigo Ministries, which is ran by Hannah Overton. She was a woman who was falsely incarcerated and she was given a life sentence for um, the death of her child, which she didn't do, and she was exonerated. She took that money and created a a ministry and a foundation that she has a home for the ladies. They do programming, make sure they have their basic needs met, and just really supports them when they get out. Also delivering hygiene items to the women on the inside. So finding those type of organizations that specifically work with women can be tough, um, but they're there. And, you know, we try to serve as at least a point of contact for the women to know that they can trust us and we will find um, services wherever, you know, wherever we can meet their need, we're going to do the best we can. I didn't, I didn't include this question or the discussion, but I'm, I'm curious if there's a statistic that shows when there is some type of therapy offered and educational classes, if, if there are in anywhere, um, women that go through these things and they get out, what their results and how successful they are versus when women aren't offered those two services. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I don't have the statistic on hand, but what I can tell you is that, you know, um, the rate of re offending, uh, you know, drastically, drastically drops when women participate in higher education for sure. The problem is, and this is something we're, you know, very vocal about with um, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, the, the, good Lord, the imbalance between higher educational opportunities for men on the inside versus women, there is such a huge gap. Um, Men have programs, um, especially through Lee College and, and Sam Houston, that they can get their master's and PhD programs, right? Women struggle, uh, especially in the Gatesville area, 
to complete an associate's and they still don't have the bachelor's program up and running. Um, we had one, it fell apart, never had a master's program. We were told, uh, you know, women didn't, women didn't need business degrees. There were, there were vocationals and culinary arts. Was this 1954? I mean, come on. You would think, um, there was a bill during session that would have addressed this and, and TDCJ really, boy, some of those legislators, even the most conservatives were like, what, why is this like this? And we've been having this same discussion about the, the, just the completely, um, lack of opportunity for women, especially with higher education. So, but studies show that anyone that participates in higher education, the more education you get, the, the rate of you returning to prison drops with each milestone GED associates and, and you continue to go on and it, it, it does drop. It's, um, I tell the women on the inside, I, I love you doing the other programming, but you need to get a college degree. Um, all that other stuff out here, people, employers don't, I'm sorry, Heather, I use a lot of profanity. It almost came out. Uh, oh no, that's fine. It's fine. I was like, employers don't give a fuck about your little certificate that, you know, you, oh, I got a little certificate. No. Did, do you have a college degree? Um, get something that's really tangible, but it's hard for them because their opportunities are severely limited compared to men. And that's real. That's real data, like right there on TDCJ stuff. This has brought up just another thought that I've had. So the, the prison system itself, I'm, I'm very ignorant on how it's run, who runs it, if there's like a top person and it comes down. But do prison systems want to or see the value in, in putting in education or offering therapy or offering, you know, period care? Um, is it? Is it as simple as, as a prison system saying, yeah, I'm going to do that? Or does that have to, or do these have to be mandated from somewhere else? Well, you know, I think it, it is up to the prison, right? Like they could do all this stuff on their own. They've got a board, they've got an executive director. And I think as we've seen formerly incarcerated women start to, to be vocal and show up to stuff. We just went to the board meeting in Galveston. Um, and I, that was the thing I talked about, you know, people talked about the mail and that's a whole nother issue and the heat. Uh, but I brought up the women's programming and I've seen changes. Now the, uh, the prison system has its own school district outside of college. Uh, TDCJ runs college programming under their rehabilitation division. The high school, the GED level stuff is an actual school district called Wyndham. Um, it operates just like any other school district. Their superintendent is a woman who gets it, believes it, and she is doing her best. Uh, the lady that's over the reentry division, they hear us, they get it as women, and they, they're doing the work that they can, right? But, you know, there's only so much they can do to address an entire culture of, of inequality. Um, but yes, the, the prison system itself, it doesn't have to have legislation to do this stuff. We often go to the legislators so that it is in statute, so that it is, let's codify it. We don't really have a lot of trust that when you say you're going to do it, um, maybe you will, maybe you won't, right, if you do. But if these two ladies leave, well, then reentry in, in the school district, well, what if they hire two people that don't give a damn? You know what I mean? Like, so let's get this stuff uh, codified in law. Um, but here's the problem with that. There is no independent oversight of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, like there is our jail system. Um, so who enforces it? <laughs> like, how do we know it's getting done? We have to trust them to come back in front of the legislators and say, we did it. Well, who checks that? Nobody. <laughs> so it, it can feel very frustrating. Um, but, you know, I, I think, again, the more women continue to show up and say, uh-uh, no, 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 you're not going to get away with saying that. I have seen them react in ways I've never seen react in 20 years, over 20 years. I mean, that's powerful. That's powerful. That's huge. Cong I mean, I, I want to say congratulations. The resilience, the perseverance is, is amazing. It's inspirational. And, um, you know, we all have our things that we go through that lead us on the 
on the journey that we are and the way that we decide to to give back to humanity. I, again, don't want to put words in your mouth, but I have to wonder, you go through this trauma, you serve time, and then you turn around and decide you're going to <laughs> kind of butt up and for all intents and purposes, fight this this institution that was hard is, I mean, is there some anxiety there that when you're like standing in front of people who are in the legal system and, or is it kind of like, you're going to hear me now? I think, you know, of course there is, right. Especially those of us that are on supervision. Um, I'm fortunately, thank God, not anymore. Um, but you know, God, almost 30 years of being under their control. Uh, it does get nervous for some of our members. Uh, you know, but that, that actually adds a layer of protection because we know legislators and people, you know, it's hard to show, you know, Hey, if they've retaliated in some way, right. Well, it's very easy to point to, Oh my God, they're retaliating. So I think that protects us, but it is to be in front of legislators and be in these rooms and spaces with the executive directors and the, the entities that caused us harm, especially for myself. Um, it is tough. It's t- I think I'm better than I used to be, uh, but like the youth system stuff, the first couple of hearings, just knowing they were in the room, I would like start sweating. I felt like I was 15 again. I felt terror like real terror. The youth system did something so horrible to me in those two years that TDCJ didn't in 18. So it's, it's, it's terrifying. Um, strange thing to that is that I do trust the leadership of the youth system at this point far more than I do the adult system. Uh, but it, it, it is a lot. It is, it's terrifying, but it is super, it is super empowering to, to watch them treat me with respect (laughs) (laughs) and treat the women that come with us, um, you know, with, yes, Miss Toon, how are you? Thank you. Um, yeah, that kind of makes it worth it. Yeah. But that, that does goes to show your, your strength and your perseverance, you know, fighting that anxiety and that trauma. So what, what is next for, for Linus? Like where, where are y'all headed? Is there another big, um, advocacy that y'all are are fixing to step up and and take on? Yeah, well, we're sticking with the temperature control. Uh, We're going to be transitioning over that discussion into, remember, we're trying to keep it between 65 and 85. And anybody living in Texas knows it gets super hot and it gets extremely cold. uh, And uh, a lot of those units, it's below 65. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're going to be talking about that, making sure the momentum around temperature control isn't lost. Uh, also working on, again, women's programming and the issues around that. But we are building out our local groups. We're not just an Austin group that does state advocacy. We want these uh, groups all over the state to to have their own leader and their own needs met in their community. So really creating that network across the state is um, something that we're heavily focused on right now. It takes a lot of work, especially as a volunteer organization. Um, you know, we live off of donations, grassroots organizing, grassroots organizing. So, um, yeah, that's, that's what's on the horizon for us. And there's on your website, there's a spot for people to donate. There is. We, we have a fundraiser right now, uh, about the heat. We collaborate with other organizations and ministries that take in cooling towels, water bottles, hygiene products. A portion of that will go to them. Uh, and then always under the tab to support our work. You can donate online or, or send a check to our fiscal sponsors, Build Up Inc. They are helping us grow into a sustainable nonprofit. Love that. And then will you just tell people where they can find Lioness, your website, social media? Yeah, you. It, our website is lionessjiwa.org. Uh, you can find us on all the social media platforms, thanks to our community engagement coordinator, Marcy Simmons. And you can find uh, Linus all over my platforms and hers. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you educating me and um, helping me understand that there's 
there are still pockets that are not getting the space and the voice that they deserve. And I'm going to change that about for me and, and hopefully, you know, just get that recognition that needs to be done because um, what y'all are doing is very powerful, very needed. And, um, you know, the people that, that go through the trauma and then turn around and help others are the, the world's best people. So thank you for what you do. I appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you.